0: Hello and welcome to the Humanizing Growth podcast series, brought to you by the Institute for
1: Real Growth. Each week, IRG founders Frank van den Driest and Mark de swann
0: will be talking to global leaders and practitioners to discuss what it takes to drive human-centric growth. For more information, visit www.instituteforrealgrowth.com. Welcome, good morning, good afternoon. From all around the world, this is Mark Deswanarons of the Institute for Real Growth. And I'd like to welcome you to this week's session of the Humanizing Growth with Raja Manar. I was going to actually do a little quiz and see if we could pronounce each other's last names and <laughs> see who tripped <laughs> up the most. <laughs> but Raja, I'm going to give you a proper introduction in a minute. But first, where are you and how are you?
1: Firstly, thank God. I'm doing well. My family is doing well. So far we are safe and that's a blessing in itself. Uh, I'm actually locked down in Cincinnati at home, which actually isn't that bad at all. You know, I got quite used to it and uh, it's been a very productive time, very wonderful uh, in terms of the kind of things that I have been doing over the last few weeks and months. And probably once things calm down a little bit on the coronavirus side, uh, then I will start traveling again.
0: Well, that's very good to hear. And Raja, all this time that we were talking and preparing, I assumed you were um, somewhere in Westchester. I had no idea that you were in Cincinnati, which is um, a little uh, contradictory because, of course, uh, Unilever is based here (laughs) on the East Coast and and (laughs) Potsdam your your former arch nemesis, is actually (laughs) in Cincinnati. Let me give you a proper introduction, Um, although you probably don't need a proper introduction. uh, Raja is truly... I think, in a position currently not uh, filled by anyone else around the world in the sense that he is leading the two largest marketing organizations, trade organizations, industry organizations, both the World Federation of Advertisers, based in Brussels, and the ANA here in North America, I think the world's largest organization. And you are leading both of those, which is a unique position, but very apt if I look back at your career, and I'm going to ask you to talk a little bit about it, but uh, we share a background, of course, in Unilever, and you've really made a career where you've combined, I think, marketing and business wholeheartedly. I mean, first through the financial world and Citigroup, and then in, uh, in healthcare, Humana, which is one of the, um, I think, most innovative healthcare companies in terms of its solutions. We've always been using them for case studies because they are always pushing the envelope. Uh, and then, of course, more recently, uh, they, they've actually rebranded, right? The organization, um, what, what is their new name again now? I'm, I'm blanking for a moment.
1: Actually, there are two companies. Humana is still called Humana. We did the rebranding in terms of the logo design and all. The other company is
0: WellPoint. That's right. I mean. And WellPoint has rebranded itself as Anthem. Right. anthem, And then, of course, now MasterCard, where you are really paving the way, both with the graphic redesign that we've all noticed and uh, and many other big initiatives where MasterCard is pushing the envelope. So, Raja, um, that is a proper introduction for a marketer who truly is also business leaders, because you aren't just the, the global CMO, you actually also lead the healthcare division of MasterCard. So you are, again, bringing together a theme that we're going to be talking about a lot today, which is marketing and business, marketing and growth, not separate, but together in one role. But let me start by recognizing the reality around us. Uh, You're sitting in your study. I'm at home. We can't go to our offices at the moment. The last six months are unprecedented in terms of the impact uh, at a personal level, at a business level. Um, When you now look back at the last six months, um, what, what has been your biggest lesson learned?
1: Yeah, in fact, you know, there are quite a few lessons, but the biggest one for me is in terms of the significant changes that are actually happening in the society in an irreversible fashion. And I'll tell you what that means. So even when coronavirus, you have got the vaccine and everything else, I think there is a permanent change in the travel industry. It's never going to be the same. Remote working is something which has really taken shape, uh, pretty solidly, I would say, Where a lot of people are actually now saying, do I really need to go to work every day? Why can't I work from home, right? And it's not that productivity is getting uh, reduced or lost in certain areas. Yes, but by and large, it seems to be doing quite well. So in that kind of a scenario, the work culture and the work methods will completely change. I don't think 100% of the people will not go back. You know, it's not going to be back to where it was COVID. There is going to be a percentage who will continue to work from home or continue to have a balance between uh, working from home and from office. Third, business travel is going to dramatically alter. Now, people have suddenly discovered the joys of Zoom and all these uh, platforms, Microsoft Teams and all. And you can have a real close-up personal conversation with your clients and prospects, without having got to go all the way there. Your productivity is so much more and your costs are so much lesser. So I think business travel is going to be completely different. Online purchases, people who have not even tried uh, e-commerce before, they were forced to try this time. And that has completely changed the landscape now. There is a growth rate, which if it went through normal growth rate, we would have said that e-commerce would have reached this level in 2026 or 2027. We already got it in 2020, right? That's the kind of significant shifts which are happening. Remote learning, schools and colleges, they're not going to be the same again ever. So the extent of change in the fabric of our whole society and the way people are going to work, people are going to manage their lives, I think it has altered pretty irreversibly. And I did not really expect
0: it to be so significant and so dramatic, let me ask you a follow-up question on that. In, if you look at your, your boardroom conversations, um, one of the things that came out of IRG program last year with uh, the 100 CMOs sort of highlighting what had changed in their companies was the, the type of discussions that were being held in the boardroom. A recognition there were perhaps before COVID was part of our world. The two stakeholders that were most represented in the boardroom were the shareholder, obviously, and the customer most often. It seems like with the onset of COVID, it suddenly flipped to the other two stakeholders, the colleague, whose safety we were worried about, and the community, where we could play a a role. And and now, post-COVID, in the new reality, we need to find a place for all four. Tell me a little bit about how the the conversation and the themes have changed at MasterCard.
1: See, I think MasterCard has been a little unique, I would say, right? And it's not because of COVID. Actually, if you look at our history, way back when the company went to IPO, there was a recognition that you have to be doing something socially good. They formed a company called MasterCard Foundation and carved out about 10% of the equity of the company was given to that other company. And that company today is worth about $35 billion. They have got assets worth $35 billion and they manage that company totally differently from MasterCard. So MasterCard has nothing to do with that company. The only thing we share is the name MasterCard. It's called MasterCard Foundation. It's incorporated in Canada. They have their own CEO, their own board, how they invest, where they invest is entirely up to them. The wisdom behind all this was to say that if you really want to serve the society, do it at arm's length from your company Mm. and give them the complete operational freedom to do what they think is right to be done without commercial interest coming in the way. Now money companies would have rested saying that we have done our bit now we can sit back and let the mm. foundation do their job but the vision of the CEO at MasterCard was amazing. So he said basically social good is not something which is adjacent to the business but it should be a core part of the business yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Yes. Right. So he challenged, for example, uh, you know, when I joined the company, he said, Raja, how do you blend social purpose into what we do? Because I want social good to be a part of our brand, part of our DNA and part of our brand, of course. So what we did was I uh, came up with a concept called priceless causes. So priceless causes is one of the four major pillars that we have, where we do societal good through the core business model that we have. So for example, we had partnered with the World Food Program, which by the way, today, it was delightful to see that they had won the Nobel Prize, Nobel Peace Prize that was just announced. So we, are, we have been their largest corporate partner. What we have done with them is we said, okay, we will run promotions in Europe across multiple countries. Each time a card member uses their card for every transaction, we'll contribute one meal to a poor child in Africa and equivalent the money would be given to World Food Program to administer and run the whole thing because we don't know how to run it. Now, this partnership had seen more than 100 million meals contributed and the way it was done was very, very methodical. And because WFP is a part of United Nations, there was credibility, they had audits and everything that so was run very, very well. Just right. as an example, or we'd partnered with uh, Stand Up To Cancer. So another huge problem. And what you see typically is Many of the pharmaceutical companies they invest in those areas where the market size is big, which means where the cancer incidence is very big. That's yeah. where see, because that's where the commercial opportunity is for, there for them. But if there are smaller segments which are affected by cancer which can be deadly, there is nobody putting effort on that. So we said we will partner with the Stand Up To Cancer Foundation, run promotions in the United States and in some countries like Russia, Canada, etc. And similar, each time you use your MasterCard at a restaurant, we will contribute a small portion of the proceeds to Stand Up to Cancer Foundation, Mm -hmm. which then deploys it for drug research. And it's delightful to see them having discovered seven drugs that have been FDA approved so far. Now, this social good is good. What does it do to my business? Whether it is World Food Program or whether it is the Stand Up to Cancer, for example, in Stand Up to Cancer promotions, our share of spend in restaurants goes up we call it wallet share or share of wallet our yeah. share of wallet goes up in the restaurants category it goes up during promotion and it doesn't stay at the high level after promotion it comes down a little bit but it is still higher than pre promotion levels yeah. and when you do the pnl for this whole and i think the roi is that we are actually breaking even and getting a bigger growth So the entire thing funds by itself. One of the biggest things that we have seen is this improves the brand image dramatically. It drives the business quite well in the focused areas. It genuinely does social good, not on a one-off basis, but on a programmatic basis. And finally, your employees feel absolutely thrilled to be working for a company which does social good. So it's a win-win-win all around.
0: Well, it's funny because when you started talking about the foundation, quite frankly, I was a little worried because uh, I, I think probably 101 on purpose work is it has to be integrated in everything you do. And then, thankfully, you just you talked about how actually all this work is fully integrated, so it's almost a double whammy. Now, so you started talking about purpose. I want to start with you, actually. So you started talking about purpose, if you don't mind. Can you tell me... Are you clear on your purpose? What is it? When did
1: you become, when did you get that clarity? This is probably one of the toughest questions everyone has to ask themselves. You know, in my case, I would say that fairly early on, I was fortunate to have a very good spiritual grounding through my parents. You know, we come from very modest middle-class background. We did not have, you know, significant wealth or anything of that sort. It was actually very frugal existence. We didn't have a car at home. We didn't have a refrigerator at home and things like that. And so it was very modest. We were not staffed for food, thank God, but it was a very modest existence. I think at that time, my parents had introduced me to certain things, which is like, for example, they would take me to old age home. And there were volunteers and there were missionaries from Catholic missionary organizations who would actually take excellent care of them. And likewise, there used to be orphanages. So every birthday, my parents would actually ask me to go with them and distribute some new clothes or uh, some food or something like that to the children, who unfortunately did not even know what their birthdays were. I think this sensitized me quite a lot to those situations, which left a profound impact. And you start feeling uh, a little bit of compassion for other people. So you start looking beyond you. And I think that stuck. But then I would not call that as a purpose. That is more a predisposition to think a little bit more purposefully. Now, when I joined my chemical engineering, I thought I knew what my purpose was. I said I have to save the world by way of environment. So I did my chemical engineering, but specialized in environmental engineering, about pollution control and how do you clean the water, clean the air. I, I, I was very passionate about it. And when I did my MBA, I specialized in environmental management. And so I thought that I was going to dedicate my life entirely to the environment. And that's what I was going, that was my purpose. But what I also realized after that, even as I was going through MBA is your purpose also probably can evolve. You want to do good, but which exact area you want to do good and how you want to do, it also keeps evolving. So I, I sort of moved uh, all over the place. I said, I'll do this, I'll do that, I'll do that, I'll do that. And I know that's part of your evolution. I have to use every facet of mine, every gift that I have got to make a difference to whoever can benefit from it. So if you talk, look at it from the point of, I feel very, very uh, you know, attached to the animals. So I have become a complete vegan. And I don't impose my stuff on anybody else. My family is only vegetarian. They're not vegans, but I don't insist that they have to do. But I try to sort of gently sensitize people, say that, hey, this is what it is. And I try to help animals in my own way. And on the other hand, I try to bring a lot of cause and purpose into my work, which is where I can actually make the biggest difference because of the scale and the the resources that the company has got. So making a difference at scale. So I look at it as a channel where some social good can be done and I can leverage my call access to those resources. The other thing I feel very passionately about is in terms of the next generation of marketers. So I go and teach at various universities. And uh, like you mentioned, I have just written a book and I try to mentor some folks, including people who have just made CMOs or who are aspiring to be CMOs. I have actually got a small infographic that I have put for myself as to what my purpose in life is. And yeah. some of them, they connect me back to what I had right at the very early childhood. I have a simple purpose statement, which is to make myself extremely valuable to wherever I can add value, leveraging any gift, any asset, any access that I have got. And yeah.
0: then I have compartmentalized and said, this is how I will do it. So that's what I have approached it. That's so special. As you were talking, uh, Raja, and thank you for sharing that. A sentence came up in my mind that I heard Oprah Winfrey say this morning. I'm doing a, a meditation course that she does with Deepak Chopra. She quoted someone, I don't remember who, who had said that um, you are most empowered when your personality is aligned with the soul. In other words, you're using the gifts of your personality. You have clear traits and skills and uh, and also, I think, a career position to unleash what the soul is trying to do. And when those are aligned, you are fully empowered. Uh, it sounds like you're working on that. It made me think of uh, what I thought were profound words. In, in that answer, I, I want to bring it a little bit closer to home. You actually have talked a little bit about your ability to influence. Uh, and, and, and you have two roles. I explained that already. The business leader and the marketing leader. And perhaps you don't see them as two separate roles. So I want to probe a little there. You know, you're in these huge organizations that mostly are CMO membership organizations, the WFA and the ANA. Tell me a little bit about what you, perhaps in that role, and personally see as the role of the CMO today and in the future.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a very pertinent question today more than ever because the CMO role is in an existential crisis. Many companies have started doing away with the role of CMO. These are not some obscure industrial companies. These are hardcore consumer marketing companies, packaged goods companies, right? When you had somebody like uh, uh, Coca-Cola eliminating their CMO, they brought the person back after two years of gap, but that's a wake-up call. you got Johnson & Johnson doesn't have a CMO. Hershey's doesn't have CMO. Kraft doesn't have CMO. When you have blue-chip marketing companies doing away with the role of CMO, you need to ask why, what is happening here? The, in fact, that's uh, you know, one of the uh, very first chapters in my book as well. I think the problem as to why CMO role has been losing its seat at the table, so to speak, if not getting even eliminated, or the role of marketing is being fragmented. So for example, if you go back to Philip Kotler, which I think is the Bible of marketing still, right? They're four P's of marketing, product, price, place, promotion many marketing organizations don't have any of these four Ps except a little bit of promotion, a little Mm -hmm. bit of advertising. They just don't don't manage product because there is somebody else managing it. They don't manage pricing, somebody else does it. Distribution, they're not involved at all. Now, if you take away all the four Ps of marketing and have just an apology of one P, so to speak, the question is, we have to ask why. My uh, answer to that essentially is because marketers have not kept Pace with the environment that is developing around us. So, for example, when you look at technology and data, when they have been evolving rapidly, marketers are more the creative folks or have come up from the creative side of the house. They never bother to take charge of data or control, so much so that the technology folks overtook. And today, they are dictating how marketing is done. Which is amazing, right? If you look at entire programmatic, ask how many marketers if they put on their, their hands on their hearts? Understand programmatic. How much do they understand various technologies that are out there? Do they understand AI? Do they understand blockchains? Somebody else is running the agenda for us and we are meekly trying to catch up now on one hand. On the other hand, there is also a situation where there is such an intense democratization of marketing that... Companies, even large ones, are under tremendous pressure to grow. And when that growth is not happening, they look to the marketing guys and say, hey, we are giving you hundreds of millions of dollars. What are we getting in return? Where is the business? And as marketers, again, a lot of people have not learned the commercial aspects of the business. Mm. They are comfortable in their zone of marketing and creativity. And when the answers, therefore, they give to CFOs are CEO, CEOs, is well, my brand awareness has gone up, my brand predisposition has gone up, my net promoter score has gone up. You've already lost them. They think that you're hiding behind jargon, avoiding their question and deflecting the answer. Mm. So, with the result of which, you lose your credibility as a CMO and you lose the credibility for your entire function. So, in many cases, they have been demoted to a level below the CEO. They're not even sitting at the CEO table. That brings us back to what should the role of a CMO be? To me, the role of a CMO, from a delivery point of view, is, number one, you have to really build and nurture a brand for the long term. Number two, you have to drive the business and be a force multiplier for your business. Number three, you have to be the single biggest competitive advantage for your company, whether it is from insights all the way to retaining consumers and renewing and deepening relationships. It's across the board. And in this day and age, there have to be amazing leaders who not only build their teams, evangelize for marketing within the company to get marketing the right stature. They should also make a true difference in the society because they are uniquely capable of doing it. They have access to resources which no other functional or business people can claim. They have the creativity. They can use both parts of their brain, the right brain and the left brain. And they have got the network. They have got the marketing power. If they deploy these, they can make a humongous difference to the society and do social good. So I would say today, a marketer is a full-fledged business manager, a general manager, who is also a deep specialist in marketing, who is socially conscious, making a difference,
0: And giving back. This is what I would say the role of a CMO today is. Well, that's so interesting. Let me run sort of um, a premise by you that is really at the core of the Institute for Real Growth program. A little bit of history for the viewers. We were both in that key meeting in Cannes a year and a half ago. When I think I, I, I don't think I'm talking out of school. We were supposed to be first thinking about the role of marketing in the future, and and we were doing that because outside the building were lots of agency people, and we were going to give direction to them. And actually, the first half of the meeting became a little bit of a therapy session where people were complaining about their lack of influence, their losing power, uh, the scope of the role being taken away by other disciplines. And we got to the question of, well, how are we going to reverse this? How are we going to take charge again? In our school of thought, and I think th- th- this really aligns very strongly with what you were talking about, not only does the market have a gap to close because of some of the things that have happened in the, in the recent past, But actually, there's a huge opportunity to take back a leadership role, almost the silver lining of COVID. Because now the rest of the organization is open to a humanized growth strategy, actually realizes that that's the only way forward. The only companies that reacted naturally and quick, as you did, when COVID struck were those where purpose was in the DNA and there were no complicated, can we talk about this or not? Because it wasn't marketing speak or just comms. It was who they were. And the brands that reacted most honestly and quickly were the ones that came out on top. And so now everyone understands we, we need to be true to this. And everyone's asking themselves, but, but how do we do that? I think this is really the time where CMOs have to take charge
1: and they have to reverse the path. And they don't have to do it alone. You see, the beauty of what we have done last year in Cannes, the meeting that you're referring to, was basically when we all came together as the CMO community and started exchanging what problems are each one of us facing and how do we really help each other as a community? Because this is not just a one company problem caused by one individual. This is prevalent across the industry. So when the industry comes together, when we all get together, we can make a difference. We can support each other. We can understand what somebody else is doing. Why I'm doing something which is working for me. And I share it with other people. So... The craft of marketing, which has been really, you know, giving us our livelihoods, so to speak, and the joy of professional success, I think we owe it back to the craft. We owe it to our colleagues. We owe it to the next generation of marketers. One of the interesting things, Mark, is when ANA has done some survey amongst the students who are doing their MBA. Marketing doesn't feature anywhere in their list of top choices. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah,
1: many of the students in universities actually still feel that marketing is a con game. They think marketing is all about hoodwinking people. You know that's appalling to see that. Yeah. So we have to really come together if we have to, you know, and, and lift this function back up. You know, when I graduated from my MBA at that time, marketing was a top choice. The yeah. best of the students would go to marketing, and you would gravitate to companies like Unilever which is what I did at the time, but today it's not. The best students want to go to start entrepreneurship. They want to go to
0: Silicon Valley. They want to join consulting firms or, or, or they want teacher. to an investment bank. Yeah, or become a teacher. In England, that is actually higher, significantly higher now. Marketing, I think, hovers around the same level as a real estate broker. <laughs> right, if you look at the whole thing. So that's
1: what ANA's study has. That's an eye-opener. We yeah. have to bring the glamour glory. It's less about glamour, but the gravitas of marketing back.
0: So let's talk about how you do that. It's funny, as you started to talk about that, a ray of sun came through your window and enlightened you. So someone's <laughs> agreeing with you.
1: <laughs> the sun <Yeah>. himself. <laughs>
0: yes. So, 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 so let me push it right back at you. You are the head of the two largest organizations in the world, uh, in the marketing field, the WFA and the ANA. Talk a little bit about what these organizations are offering CMOs, but also the next levels down in terms of understanding this and building the capabilities that are needed for success.
1: You know, I'm the president of WFA, but I'm only on the executive committee and the board of ANA. So Mark Pritchard actually leads the uh, uh, ANA. So I just want to make sure. And, uh, you know, in both these cases, the objectives are very, very aligned. And they're focusing on different aspects, but there are also a lot of commonalities, and that's the reason why it makes sense for me to, uh, you know, uh, straddle both the boards, and you, uh, you know, and really to make a difference. So to start with the WFA, the fundamental approach is to say that our mission is to say that: how do we help marketers do better marketing? How do you help them with resources? How do you help them with the frameworks? How do you help them with the templates? How do you help them with playbooks in different different areas how do you train them it, it is something which is been deeply appreciated and they have got membership around the world it's extremely well taken advantage of in a good way by marketers around the world not only marketers but what also wfas it's like an apex body it's an association of associations as well so all mm. the ad clubs in the world they are members of wfa hence it is world federation of advertisers so the other thing which WFA also does is to take industry issues and act on behalf of the entire industry, on behalf of all the marketers and tackle those issues. So, for example, there is a coalition that has been formed, by, led by WFA, called GARM, Global Alliance for Responsible Media. So, in this, what we are saying is that as marketers, we are the ones who are funding all the social platforms. And if social right. platforms are not taking enough controls for societal safety, for brand safety, how do you hold them accountable? As an individual brand, if you have the good intention, you still don't have the power to influence. But collectively as a marketing industry, we are the ones who are funding the entire social media platform yes. right. uh, in the ecosystem. So we should therefore hold them accountable. So we formed this group, all the big brands, all the small brands, they're all there part of it. The agencies are there. The ad tech companies are there and the social media platforms themselves are there. And we started breaking it down into pieces and saying, okay, let's define what is harmful content. Let's make sure that the uh, uh, social media companies would agree to be audited by third parties. Mm -hmm. There'll be standards of reporting and so on and so forth. So this is one kind of a thing. uh, When I look at ANA, ANA is another... and and a dynamically thought-leading company, right, Uh, organization. One of the key things that they have done is in this scenario to say that, look, if there is an existential crisis for the CMOs, one of the biggest areas is because marketing is not being seen as a growth driver. So an entire initiative has been formed, therefore, which is the CMO Growth Council, and that has got multiple pillars saying that what drives growth and how do we excel at this? Like, for example, I co-chair one of the four pillars within uh, uh, ANA on this aspect, which is the technology and data pillar. So things like how can we put a playbook together, training programs together, recommendations or at least resources together for marketers to be able to just tap into. So today, for example, as a marketer, if you ask them, okay, what are you thinking about augmented reality? The answer is, well, I I probably know what augmented reality is at best. (laughs) I'm not (laughs) thinking anything beyond that. No, if you don't do it, some technology case somewhere will take away your agenda and you'll become sort of, again, same uh, situation of catching up. So the key thing is we are trying to put together these playbooks as uh, just one example. Our data, what should your uh, technology stack for data look like? What kind of analytics stuff is there? What kind of companies are there? How should your contracts look like? All these things we are putting together, which will be such a huge resource for marketers that they don't have to reinvent the wheel and they can take advantage of the expertise of their colleagues and of other experts out there. So this is how we are trying to drive both at ANA and as well as WFA.
0: And the momentum has been fantastic Mark. I'm listening to this and um, on the one hand I'm very, um, uh, I mean, in admiration of all the programs that are being put together and in a way the IRG is, is such a program. On the other hand, I'm listening to you thinking, all right, so CMOs have lost this business credibility, you said, so because they're not commercial enough and because probably they were distracted by the bells and whistles of digital. And, and actually what we're saying to them is, but you need to know all these other things. Oh, and you need to move back towards the business role of thinking with your sales partner and your CFO and your CEO. And it feels like this person is having to stretch like a ballerina to an impossible position. So how do you... As a marketer, how do you balance where to put your focus?
1: See, uh, I would say that today's marketer has to be like Leonardo da Vinci. You have to be a general manager. You need to understand technology. You need to understand data. You need to understand your business. You need to understand public relations. You need to understand marketing, of course. And marketing also, you should not just be a contemporary marketer or a classical marketer, but you should be a comprehensive marketer or as I call it, the quantum marketer, right? The key thing is you have to be totally a general manager, well-rounded. You have to use the right brain and the left brain. It's it's very, very critical. And in order to do this, my strong suggestion will be for people, number one, seek rotations, job rotations and experiences outside of marketing. When you come back into marketing, you'll be a much superior marketer because now you understand the world from other side. And therefore, you start talking the language that they can appreciate and understand, or understand and appreciate. Number two, educate yourself. Now, I spend religiously five hours every weekend. I, I block the time off on my calendar, and my wife and kids know they cannot disturb me during those five hours. I will focus only on learning. So, mm-hmm. I identify a topic and I want to read upon it, I want to educate myself, or I actually reach out to people and say i
0: know you're a subject matter expert at this can you please teach me not to um, blow a smoke in your direction because we we talked uh, in the earlier rounds on um, on our article the global brand cmo which is the da vinci growth cmo where we as the institute for real growth with spencer stewart did the research on the the experiences and the attitudes of overperforming cmos global study And indeed, this Da Vinci profile came out where it is about the left side and the right side. It's about the science. It's about the creativity. But it's also, and so many people forget that, about the heart, the the humanistic side. Absolutely. Absolutely. How do you explain the fact that some of these companies that got rid of the CMO role are now reinstating them? Did they, A, find out that it was too painful and they really were lacking a voice in the room? Or B, did the CMO in that organization change or portray themselves focused differently to re-earn that position? What's your analysis of that?
1: See, my analysis is companies Ah, do feel the absence of a CMO uh, or a centralized uh, uh, body who would control everything and coordinate everything around marketing because at the end of the day, marketing programs are there. However, when they are bringing, in some cases, when they're bringing somebody as a CMO, they are bringing non-marketing people as the CMOs. Mm. So marketing has not gained the gravitas oh, yes. and the credibility mm. to be sitting at the C-suite on a continuous basis in these kind of companies.
0: Right, right. Uh... But
1: there are other companies, like for example, if you look at Unilever, I'll just give a simple example, or you look at Kimberly Clark, mm-hmm. they have actually elevated the CMO role even beyond. And they said now it's chief digital and marketing officer. Okay, whereas it's digital because it was more resetting in the technology sphere. So some companies are progressing quite nicely. Unilever, for example, is fantastic. Like Keith Weed was a CMO. Now Connie Brans, who is his successor, she's a chief digital and marketing officer. That's brilliant. But these are more exceptions. My biggest worry is the fragmentation of marketing and being spread out across the board and the elimination of either a classical or a hardcore marketer and replaced by somebody who has never run marketing before and made him or her as the CMO sitting on top of marketers because marketing is not a function that you can run with common sense. There is intuition, there is judgment, there is
0: experience, there is wisdom. I was going to build on that. What we see so often, and particularly in the IRG program, we have CMOs from traditional companies like Bayer and GSK and Unilever. And we have CMOs from new world companies like DoorDash and... um, I was talking to the CMO of Poshmark yesterday mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and Dropbox, and they're all in the program comparing notes. And without naming individuals, what, uh, what's, what's very clear is that there's been this swing, at least this is my interpretation. Um, I think we were probably known as the spenders with too little understanding of the effectiveness of that spend 20 years ago. Then digital came along with all its bells and whistles and the ability to measure everything, perhaps not even the things we need to measure. And marketers with their chip on the shoulder of always being the ones that were vague, perhaps overkilled and went down the data analytics route. And there are several organizations now where they're trying to uh, sort of re-integrate the creativity back in because you can't optimize yourself to a great idea uh, or to innovation for that matter. But the scary part, and I think that's what you're highlighting, is that in those 20 years, a new generation of marketers stepped up, and what they saw was that this was the way to do things, and they totally didn't see what you learned at Unilever and what you practiced in your other organizations, the business leader. Now, you're the CEO of one of the main businesses of, uh, of MasterCard. When you look around you as a CEO, and you look at the peers, and you look at how marketing interacts with the other disciplines. I want to highlight one because it was raised in the question. Organizational culture. I mean, it starts there, right? Uh, what, what do they say? Uh, culture eats a uh, strategy for breakfast. Breakfast, yep. What's the role of a marketer in driving culture?
1: It's immense, immensely important, right? I'll just tell you about a couple of interesting things. Please. So at MasterCard, we are fortunate that the CEO of the company was actually a marketer. Uh, you know, he, he was my boss. He was the head of marketing at Citibank, but I used to report to him. Uh, and he was from Nestle's and, uh, you know, from KFC and so on. So he understands he gets marketing. And one of those marketers who transitioned to a very successful uh, CEO. Yeah. Uh, so here we have been actually having this conversation. And what we said is that look, if you have to change the culture of the company, you need to make people understand the value of marketing. They don't understand the value of marketing. If you simply try to teach them or preach to them, they have to experience marketing. So he has now mandated that any general manager before he or she hits the C suite have to have a rotation through marketing. Mm. It's going to change a culture profoundly about being a marketing sensitive, marketing centric or a consumer centric, human centric kind of a company on the one hand. Number two, when we are evolving, things like the purpose of the company, the ethics that you have to practice, these can be seen by many hard-nosed finance folks and CEOs as fluffy and as something which is relatively, uh, you know, oh, yeah, it's good for a political correct statement that you're going to make or write in your annual report, oh, our ESG report is glowing, etc. But for the rest of the year, don't do anything about it. So it's not in the culture of the company. Marketers can play a huge role in this. By building that momentum, starting with the CEO of the company, with the C-suite, and down the chain of the command uh, of the entire organization, to perpetuate the importance of purpose, importance of ethics, importance of causes, etc. This is one part of it. The other one is today, fortunately, particularly amongst the millennials and the next generation, you find that they are less selfish than the generations before them. Yes. They are more outward focused. They are more, I would say, idealistic in a very good way. They are more purpose-driven. Yeah. They are willing to take cut in their pay. Almost 60% of millennials said they are willing to take a cut in their pay to be able to work for a company that is purpose-driven in a genuine, authentic way, not just in a know facade. When you have got these kind of facts that are out there, you want to create a narrative around it. You need to really uh, knit together a powerful narrative to sensitize people at the C-suite. So a marketing person should be an evangelist for these kinds of things. You need to tell the story convincingly to your peers, get their emotional point, get them signed up and then start percolating it. Because these kind of initiatives are very top driven on the one hand. The other thing, when you look at innovation, marketing is all about creativity and out of the box thinking and innovation, right? Now, marketing should run actually innovation programs and campaigns within the company to get the best ideas. So, for example, I can tell you, we have done last year an innovation challenge at MasterCard. Growth hacks like uh, organization. Growth hacks kind of a thing, right? And this is open not just to marketers, but outside of marketing too. Now, one of the ideas which came actually came from the treasurer, from the treasurer's area and the company. You know, you would think that these guys are totally different than what but it's a brilliant idea and actually now we have filed for a patent for that and it's all being developed and so on okay. so the point i'm trying to make is that marketers have got a crucial role vital role to change the culture within the company at various levels on various topics and at the end of the day we are the ones who are supposed to understand people better than anybody else right and you should understand your colleagues and peers too in the process they're also uh, people you know
0: th- th- this is music to my ears uh, raja it's funny because Keith Reid, when he and I had this conversation a few months back, and Keith has been single-minded in saying, own the consumer. It's your ticket to any boardroom, always. And as he and I were talking about this, and subsequently too, especially now that we have COVID, with uh, um, such a rude awakening, if you like, of our role in the world as companies, as individuals, as colleagues. Um, uh, we, we've evolved that in the Da Vinci Growth um, CMO profile to own the stakeholder. Make sure that everyone in the organization understands the key stakeholders. Now, of course, there are people that actually specialize in dealing with those stakeholders. The CFO will always be the one that does investor relations. Ultimately, the head of HR will be the one responsible for the um, community of colleagues. But that doesn't mean you can't collaborate very closely and build an integrated picture of the multi-stakeholder demands of the organization. So I, I, I so agree with your broadening the perspective. You mentioned the title of your book uh, twice, Quantum. Uh, I'd, like to, I'd really like you to unpack it a little bit for us and perhaps give us a little bit of a teaser of why you thought it was necessary to, um, to devote all the time that you have I know how difficult it is to find the time to write a book. Um, Why you felt this was necessary and and what sort of the key messages from your upcoming book are? If you look at
1: the world of physics, I'll just, you know, connect the dots in a minute. But when you look at the world of physics, physics is a science that tries to explain all the phenomena around you in this physical world, right? The laws of gravity, the laws of electricity, magnetism, all this, right? And the various laws and the postulates and the theorems of physics held very good for centuries. This is called classical physics, sometimes also called Newtonian physics. However, when science started advancing, and we have been able to look at, for example, through telescopes, like Hubble telescope and all, gigantic, vast, gigantic spaces out there in the skies, right the nebula and galaxies and so on, or when you go to mini microscopic spaces like you know inside atomic particles, subatomic particles, and so on, classical physics completely failed. When man started developing the capability to increase speed more and more and more and more and more, uh, whether it is for processing, computer processing, or it is actually for even the vehicles that are traveling, what they discovered is as the speed of an object starts going towards the speed of light, tending towards that, all physical loss breakdown. So to explain this new environment that we are in, a new field of physics was born called quantum physics by Max Planck, which has formed the basis for everything that we do today, including theory of relativity, or the nuclear control, nuclear fusions, or you're talking about anything, right? Uh, Quantum computing and so on. Now, when I look at marketing, I see stunning parallels Marketing was being practiced since God knows how long, from the days of Pompeii, you know, or even before the caveman types in different ways. Mm -hmm. But today what's happening is the advent of technologies is totally altering consumers' lives in an unbelievable fashion. Smart speakers, artificial intelligence, augmented reality, virtual reality, blockchains, 5G, 3D printing, robotics, connected cars, wearables. It's like in a slew of these new technologies are coming at us so rapidly. It's going to change consumers' lives very dramatically. Now, the question is, is marketing ready for that? Now, my own hypothesis clearly is that classical marketing will totally fail. It's already failing today. And marketing, the way we practice it today, will just not work tomorrow. You need a new field of marketing, which I'm calling quantum marketing, just like quantum physics. So quantum marketing is about understanding the new dynamics understanding the new uh, environment that we are in, the new variables that we have to play with and be prepared for that. So my book is all about telling, here are the things that are happening in our environment on technology, on sciences, on various aspects that impinge marketing in some way or the other. What is the effect going to be on consumers' lives or on organizations' lives? Because you are talking about B2B and B2C as well. And therefore, what should be the marketer's playbook? And that is what quantum marketing, this book, is all about.
0: And, and so do the aspects of the new role, if you like, the new way to play the role, what, what would you say are the three biggest changes versus the current role?
1: So I'll, I'll tell you what changes are and therefore what the roles should change, right? So, for example, I am saying advertising, as we know, is dead. I've been saying it now for three, four years, right? Advertising, as we know, is dead. When you have got 5,000 ads being bombarded at consumers every single day, their span of attention growing less than that of a uh, uh, goldfish at less than eight seconds yeah. with the fragmentation of the screens. Mm-hmm. And with consumers having a active hatred for advertising because it's an interruption to these experiences. Consumers are putting ad blocks, more than 600 million growing 30% per year. Why do you want to hold on to that stupid model? It's not going to work in the future. I I go into a lot of depth in the book, but I'm just giving the highlight, right? So I'm saying advertising, we need to rethink. How are you going to communicate and connect with the consumers? I'm saying loyalty is dead. Hundreds of billions of dollars are spent every year on loyalty programs. I'm saying that's the stupidest thing that we do as marketers. More than 75% of people who are married, who make a commitment, till death do us apart, 75% are not loyal. If people are not loyal, In a situation where they have made a commitment and they have consequences of breaking that commitment, and still anyway they are cheating, are we not stupid as brands to expect people to be loyal to us? Right. No, these are the kind of very provocative questions I'm posing, and I'm answering them, and I'm giving a framework to reimagine and rethink each and every one of them.
0: I want to end, uh, we have one minute left, or less than a minute left, I want to end on the... Uh, the, the, the personal note that we always end. Rajah, you've talked a lot about lessons learned, but if I asked it, you asked you to lift one out, one thing that actually humbles you and is a guiding light moving forward to all our other viewers, other CMOs and more junior marketers, what would it be? For me, I think the
1: big, one of the biggest humbling moments I would say is when I have created what I thought was a super brilliant campaign for Citibank, not just a campaign, but an entire solution end-to-end in Citibank when I was in Dubai, it, it was absolutely, there was no way it was going to fail. And once it was launched, it not only failed, but we had a lot of controversy and a lot of PR crisis arising out of that.
0: And, and we have less than 30 seconds. So what was the lesson learned?
1: The lesson learned was that don't ever be 100% sure of yourself.
0: Mm.
1: Ask people, learn, listen Mm. and learn, listen and learn. We undervalue research. Don't undervalue research.
0: Mm.
1: Whenever budgets get cut, you throw research out first. Typically, that's what happens. No. Consumer insights, listening to them is very critical, even if you are absolutely sure that you understand consumers. No, you don't. They are dynamic. They are changing every day. Don't be arrogant, be humble and learn.
0: Well, I think you have, um, you have embodied the characteristic that you're describing and we call in the CMO profile, the Da Vinci CMO profile called curiosity. If you're spending five hours a week learning new things and you're actually in the role that you are now, I think most people would sit on their laurels. Raja, thank you for manifesting that curiosity, that leadership, for the whole marketing community. I wanna thank you for taking this time on a Friday morning or evening if you're somewhere else. Thank you to you all. Much appreciated, Mark, thank you for having me. And thank you to all the viewers, thank you.